Chris. Welcome to Speak and Destroy, episode 38. Speak and Destroy is a podcast about all things Metallica, and I am your host, Ryan J. Downey. My guest this episode is Billy Duffy, guitarist for The Cult. The Cult put out a trio of legendary records, Love, Electric, and Sonic Temple, which is celebrating an anniversary this year. And of course, The Cult has a long shared history with Metallica. So let's get right into it. Here's my conversation with Billy Duffy of The Cult. This is Speak and Destroy. Yeah, first of all, thanks for taking the time to do this. I really appreciate it. Oh, cool. Yeah, no problem, man. I mean, it's an interesting thing to do and kind of get the outreach of the cult, you know, a little out of our lane, if you know what I mean. Because yes, we, we do have some quite a lot of history with Metallica, funnily enough. Probably more than a lot of bands that you would think had history with Metallica. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. That's kind of the story, you know. People just make very broad assumptions about types of music and musicians and well if they're metal then they you know what i mean it's like mm-hmm. or they're rock or is it kind of interesting to me people are very um tribal in that respect mentally so it's good for us to be able to talk about how two bands who sound very different could be sort of friends and have influenced each other and you know what i mean yeah and i think uh to that point you know a big difference between now and you know, the late 80s and the early 90s when you guys were paired together playing shows, I think this younger generation seems to be a bit more open-minded when it comes to cross-pollinating their, uh, you know, musical bedfellows. I'd agree. They don't, yeah, they don't, I mean, my generation, I mean, I've got a daughter and I see a lot of people who, they don't have the same framework of reference. It's a different world. And yeah. it and you know the, the the selling out and you can't a lot of the can dos and can't dos really don't exist anymore. So you know we find ourselves you know somewhat talking about uh, frames of reference that don't matter to the next generation. You know they just don't. It's just not even something they think about. I have two kids myself. My daughter's eleven and my son is six, and I've exposed them to you know a lot of different kinds of music, and it's just interesting to see you know as you said that they don't um, recognize boundaries, you know. They might right, say, that's it. oh, this is faster. That's this it, you know, whatever. because yeah. the information's out there. Mm-hmm. You know, kids, you know, the first thing, they, they just pick up their, their, their phone, get on the YouTube or get on whatever, and they can just make their own decision about, you know, good's good, they either like it or they don't kind of thing, you yeah. know. So so it's, it's cool. It's good good things. There's also this thing now of instant expertise where you know we used to have what a friend of mine calls secret knowledge where you know for example my older brother turned me on to the cult with the love record and um you know i got that record i loved it and then i had to you know go to the magazine stand (laughs) look for uh primarily british import magazines at the time you know to start learning about you guys and then you know the electric record came out and mtv 
put some videos in rotation. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, but it's like you had to really – you had to meet somebody that knew something and then read something, whereas now if you hear the cult for the first time, you just fire up your web browser and everything you could ever out. want to know is – but what I love about conversations like this one and to your very original point about people's assumptions and, and so forth, a lot of what's available about the history of music and rock music – is like a list of statistics or facts or sold this many records or came out on this date or went on this tour. Yeah. And these conversations really get more to the heart, I think, of uh, the actual stories. So with that in mind, Well, yeah. it's the humanity side of it. You know, unfortunately, yeah. you know, there's, there's many big, you know, history is, history is always written by the victors, not the vanquished. <laughs> so our perspective of everything is usually, you know, generally speaking, about the, the victorious, the people who have had the most success and power, so they write the script, and that's how it's remembered as it's passed down. Um, <laughs> Amen to that. You know, so, yeah. you know, it's funny on that subject, though, with Metallica, I remember mm -hmm. once Ian had a great quote with Lars. This is a funny story, because I remember Ian came out and said, Lars, don't ever confuse bigness with greatness. Mm. Because there are a lot of big bands, and they're, they're out there that mm -hmm. aren't that great. It was a conversation about creativity and art and, you know, the other side. Yeah, you know, okay, you can be like, run a band like a business, like a, like a musical factory of, of making the right decisions based upon all these criteria of marketing and success and power and, you know, we, we, more, bigger, better, faster. But on the other side, you know, in the end... There's also the art, you know, and the art, mm -hmm. that the art can get a little left behind. And a brave musician makes artistic choices, you know. It's, it, it, you know, if you can do both, all the better, you know. But, but he was an interesting, I remember Ian said that, and it was just like one of many conversations we had. But I do remember saying that because, you know, it's, there, there have been great artists who've been very influential who didn't sell a lot of records, who Absolutely. didn't fill arenas. Course. But they made mo they actually made more impact because they were pioneers. Mm -hmm. I mean, know? We, we still speak about the Bad Brains, and you know, if the Bad yeah. Brains played a gig tonight, uh, you know, we're talking about a couple hundred people, maybe. You well, know, that's and the yet, thing, and, that, and that's what it, the conversation know? was. That, well, exactly, and that's what Lars, because Lars, you know, obviously one of the things was Lars always loved the cult. That's why we ever played with Metallica initially. Was Lars, you know, being European and this and that, he had. You know, more. He just, he just always liked the cult. He got it early on, and you know, a sort of a friendship grew out of that, which, which predated us playing with Metallica. You know, we, we were hanging out with Lars. I remember in London, we, we went to me and Ian went to see Ozzy Osbourne play Hammersmith Odeon, mm. and I went backstage, met Ozzy, and you know, they, they, they kind of, you know, it was like one of those things when you were an up and coming band. People tend to want you to meet like the you know the pillars and your peers and we went backstage and loved it. Met Ozzy and he was just sitting there waiting to have his one Guinness he was allowed in the fridge. <laughs> it was very funny. He opened his fridge. He went, "Look, they just give me one Guinness after I'm done." You know, it's before he got sober. But yeah. but on, on the same night we ran into Lars. I can't quite remember. I do remember being in a mini cab in London with Lars and Ian. I don't know who else was there. And Lars had. Um, Master of Puppets on cassette mm. before it came out. 
and he was embarrassed about playing it. And, and obviously, we're all drinking very heavily. <laughs> so anything I can say, I have to, you know, qualify it as this is my recollection. Yes. London, rainy, horrible night as usual. Lars in the car, slightly embarrassed about playing Master of Puppets. And me and Ian going, go on, go on, put it on. We, I think we put it on in the car or something like in a cassette player. Mm-hmm. And that's the first time, you know, they've done, done that record. That, that's my recollection of it. There's, you know, there could be others, but I do remember that's the first time we started hanging out. And you you know, have, and, uh, do you have any recollection of what that sounded like the first, uh, I mean, because the record starts out super aggressively. <laughs> you know, yeah, like, I mean, I, see, we loved them because they were so extreme. That the, mm-hmm. the beauty to me of Metallica was they were so so extreme at what they did it was amazing you know it's it, i'm not a metal guy you know it's not my in my dna you know i can appreciate quality metal but i'm not you know of that grew up listening to metal i'm just more of a 70s rock guy mm-hmm. but i i got it they were so extreme and that's what we loved about it you know and at the time I think we were right around working with Rick Rubin in New York, mm. and we were being exposed to Slayer and Anthrax and that whole scene with Run DMC and and um, Def Jam. Yeah, Public and the Enemy fusion and of it all. Boys yeah, and, you know what yeah. I mean? And Public Enemy and, and like Metallica were part of that subculture of, of, of like the metal side of that. And it was just very much um, a period where we were opened up to the lack of tribalism. Because in England, we'd grown up in this culture where since punk, you know, about five journalists told everybody what they could like and what they couldn't like. You know, and we, the Love Album, ironically, did tremendously well for the cult in the UK and outside. But we got very bad press in the UK. They couldn't get it. Like, why is there this guy with the long black hair and who does he think he is? And, you know... We, we, you know, blah, 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 we had this, you know, it was only 10, you know, less than 10 years after the pistols, you know, so mm-hmm. there was a lot of negativity in the press, which nowadays wouldn't matter, but in those days it did matter, so when we went out of the UK, and one of the reasons why the cult always had a more of a global outlook, was that people took what we were doing very differently without those kind of prejudices, mm. Um and, and, and ironically, in the UK, the worse the press got, the better we did. You know, the Love Tour was a, a complete sellout. We did plenty of shows. Yeah. We had the hits, but we, you know, it's, as a musician, you hate, you, you get those reviews and they're just slagging you off. And it was like, ugh, you know what I mean? Yeah. And, and then, you know, and then, and then you, you know, they, they write like everything nice about certain bands like the Smiths. You know, they can do no wrong. Mm-hmm. And, and we're like, you know, it's just the way it goes. So... Getting that broader outlook was funny, so that was uh, that was kind of it, you know. The, the, it, it, that was my first. But I do remember also another Metallic because I've, I've just remembered it. I'm in San Francisco right now talking to you. Yeah, which we're is playing perfect, tonight. Yeah, um, and and I remember taking. It was definitely Lars and possibly James, or I, I, I think Lars and James, maybe. I'm sorry, there was two guys. Two of the band guys in Metallica, definitely Lars, for sure. I'm, I'm not, it might have been James. Anyway, we, there was this kind of like new wave club that we'd played before on Hate Street. I can't remember the name of it. There was a British band playing. I believe it was Red Lurry, Yellow Lurry. 
mm-hmm. and it was like a new wave. Like it was the club the cult played in '84 when we came up to San Francisco. It might have been the I Beam or something, but and it was on Haight Street. And so I remember being with Metallica and going to the club, and they didn't want to let them in because <laughs> they looked long hair metal guys, and they're like, and, and me, I, we got them in. I'm like, these guys are from here. They're like a big bat, and they're like, you know what I mean? And we got that. It was a little moment of that kind of like, oh, wow, you know, there is a little tribalism. Um, you know, again, always have to qualify that. That's my recollection, and I was drinking heavily, as was everybody else. So, you know, it's, it's a good story, and there's definitely, like all good stories, truth in it. And it was the club on Hate Street, and I remember also eating the biggest burrito I've ever seen in my life. Was across that, the way. Sorry, was that club there. called uh, the I Beam? I think it was the I Beam, and yeah. it was more like a, yeah, it was more like a British. It was new wavy, post punk. Yeah, you know, that I, was the I kind of say music. like Susie Sue played there. You know, uh, that was it. Every, yeah, like Killing Joke, the cult, and, yeah. Mission, or Killing Joke. That's the kind of music. And I remember we showed up, and obviously we're like a big deal. You know, the cult show yeah. up, and it's like, oh wow, in that world, we're right. a name, right? Ironically, you know, but Metallica, they were like, who are these guys? It was just funny. It's just a funny moment. Yeah, and it's funny because right now everything in pop culture is so much about the niche, whereas, you know, prior to now, everything was always about, you know, how big can you penetrate into the mainstream consciousness? How many people can you get to be aware of of your movie or your record or your you know, cookbook, yeah, and, and now yeah. it's like, uh, it's very specialized, and it's like, there's more of a championing of, you know, being Billy Duffy and walking into a place like I-Beam, and how much cooler that is <laughs> than, uh, yeah, you know, a lot of know, other things. things. Things are cyclical, I'm sure if you yeah. stick around long enough, you know, musically, I mean, like artists, you know, I, you know, and that was, that was one of the big greatest bits of advice that Ian and I ever got from, uh, there was a guy called Jeff Ayroff who worked at Warner Brothers when we did the Love album. So mm-hmm. cause the cult's background was we were signed to an English indie label called Beggar's Banquet. Mm-hmm. And any, so to release our albums in the world, they would do a separate licensing deal. In the case of North America, it was with Sire, because Seymour right. Stein loved us, but, and they had a great roster. But, Seam, but Sire was indeed an American independent label, distributed through Warner Brothers. So really, we, we ended up on Warners. And this guy, Jeff Ayroff, who was a great guy, a bit of an old hippie, really got the cult. And he got Ian, and he got that thing. There's a thing about the cult where certain guys who remember the 60s who were there mm-hmm. um, and didn't do too many drugs, so they actually remember it, went and got Ian. Yeah. They get Ian. Like, he's a, the Ian's Ian, you know, like Bill Graham, for example, the, the great promoter from up here and whatnot, he really got Ian. You know, Ian, Ian's kind of almost not of this era. He's, he, I was going to say, he he, he's very timeless in that sense, where there's something about what he does, uh, not just his voice, but his charisma and his stage presence and his, his image and everything that fits in with every decade because it doesn't fit in with any decade, if that makes sense. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. He's definitely a little bit one step outside, and that's just who he is, you know. And, yeah. uh, you know, I've long ago come to, you know, but got, again, at times that doesn't jive with the world and it's frustrating, but, yeah. you know, uh, at other times you, you look at it and you see the people who really got it. And this guy, Jeff Ayroff, 
was one of those guys, and he did these cool art posters of the cult with like the the Indian head off the cover of Sanctuary, and he did mm-hmm. the words love on it, and made like pop art posters, and kind of got the stuff, and he once said to me, and Ian, right early on, he said, look, be very careful the choices you make at this point, because you either have to decide whether you want to do this, like, as a lifelong career, and make music, and what are you in this for, yeah. or do you want to just kind of, like, you know, stuff all the food off the, 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 the banquet table, you know, it's uh, help yourself and feed yourself and die of uh, gluttony and burn out real quick, <laughs> yeah, you know? Yeah. If only and, more uh, bands had those conversations at, at those crucial early points in their career. <laughs> yeah, so yeah, yeah. It depends off. who you talk to and also who you're willing to listen to and just mm. if it sinks in. You know, because you're young and you're crazy and having a good time and drinking and living life like a little pirate and some bands listen some bands don't you know and uh that was good advice because me and ian you know the whole reason we got together in 1983 was we both had the same basic idea we just wanted to be allowed to be in a band make broadly speaking guitar orientated rock music and just see where that took us you know bearing in mind the stuff i said earlier about the press because he he'd been in a successful band in the uk the southern death call Mm-hmm. I'd been in a successful band, possibly even a bigger band called Theatre of Hate, and we both were no longer in those bands, and we got together out of choice and a desire and a very simple, you know, message. Don't get dragged down these little cul-de-sacs of tribalism. Just make good music, and if it, if it turns you on, it'll, it'll, you know, the audience will dig it. And that's sort of where we started. And um, and and so it's been a good, you know, that's been a good thing. Oh, I always go back to trying to remember why I'm doing this in the first place mm-hmm. sometimes. Yeah, I actually, you mentioned Seymour Stein, and I actually have my Sire Records T-shirt from, uh, I went to see you at uh, with Seymour Stein at the Grammy Museum for the Sire. Oh, that was a beautiful, yeah, that was yeah. a beautiful thing, you know. I mean, you know, I suppose I'm, I suppose it's safe to say at this point, the amount of recreational drugs that Seymour used to do in the 80s. Because <laughs> <laughs> I, I actually was a boozer more than a drug guy. You know yeah. I mean? My, yeah. I, I just, you know, whatever, you pick your poison. Mine was mostly booze. If they'd had Red Bull back in the day, I would never have done any other substances because I only ever did anything to keep me awake so I could drink more. Right. <laughs> uh, which is another thing I, we had in common with Metallica and yes. Lars. You know, Al- how long? Yeah. How much alcohol can you drink and still not pee in your pants, you know? Um, yeah. So, yeah, but Seymour, God, God, it was a beautiful thing. I'm glad I participated because he, the cult, you know, we had some success. We came over to America without a record deal, and a couple of people were sniffing around, but they didn't commit. So we put the Love album out everywhere but America. It was out in Canada and in Europe. It was in Canada, it was on Polygram. In Europe, it was on Virgin. Japan it came out and there was nothing in North America and Seymour must have heard or seen the video for She Cell Sanctuary mm. and flew over from New York and came and found us in the studio spring of 1985 because Live Aid was on. That's when I remember this was the period we were recording the album when Live Aid took place. So I think that was like May of 85 perhaps and Seymour flew over to see us and um we were like, oh, wow, Seymour Stein, the legend, you know, I mean, we knew our music history and 
he came over and found us in the studio and sat and had dinner with us, and we made sure we wore very tight trousers, um, which was, you know, good advice. And um, and we got a deal which suited us, and suited, and it was a good fit for Beggars Banquet. You know, who are still going. They're Beggars Group are a you know very successful independent label, yeah. um, still and active to this day. So again, we made another good choice. We chose to go with beggars. Beggars had sudden death call, but they could have. We could have walked. I mean, me and Ian could have gone and signed with any other label, but we liked them, and we signed to Martin Mills specifically, and the people who he had at that company. And the same thing happened with Seymour. And that's another interesting thing about us. We we tend to gravitate more towards people, mm. and look at their integrity. Yes, as yes. people and and people who do it. You know, it's a business. You know, I'm not as Jerry Cantrell once said. I'm not allergic to money, but it's art first. You know, the the cash and prizes later. Mm-hmm. Art first always, and that's what I liked. With we, and still we have a relationship with Beggars Banquet to this day, and they're putting out the re-release of Sonic Temple, which is kind of where we're at. You know, right to today, it's the yeah. 30 year anniversary. And that, you know, hence this conversation, and, you know, we'll probably get to the tour with Metallica very soon. <laughs> mm-hmm. Which was uh, which was on Sonic Temple, yeah? Um, that was the first gig we ever did on the Sonic Temple tour. It was oh, wow. uh, in Vancouver. Uh, and which is where Bob Rock usually works, right? Well, that's where we just spent a lot of time, and we'd done the, we recorded the album in Vancouver in 88, and right around the beginning... I think whatever the Metallica had been on tour with the, on the Justice tour for a long time, and they were mm-hmm. going for a second swing around North America playing. I think it was the tour where Lars wanted to make sure he played in all fifty states, mm-hmm. and they, you know, they'd been they they they'd been on the road a while, and we joined up uh, in in Vancouver, and we were with them for quite. I don't know how many dates we did. It seemed a lot. It seemed like the whole summer. And that's uh, I actually. Uh, I saw on your website uh, you've got, and I'll, I'll be sure to put it in the show notes and everything too. Your website has so much cool info on it and stories and uh, memorabilia, as it's called on there. And, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, and yeah, what, yeah, yeah, yeah. Thank you. Yeah, they. I mean, I can't remember. It just helps me remember by collating all this information. Right. <laughs> you know, it helps me remember that people files. contribute. Yeah. yeah. Um, but yeah, I'm looking at the. Um, the uh, sport, like the gym bags, the luggage that Metallica gave. Oh, yeah, oh, yeah, they yeah. did luggage, yeah, we, I've still got the bag. I've definitely <laughs> got so that cool. bag, that gray thing with the with the trim. and Yeah. Yeah, and then we ended up using Metallica's lighting guy to design, who did the great Justice for All, you know, stage set, the and the dolly falls yeah. down and all yeah. that. John, I think John Broderick was his name. Anyway, we used him for our tour on Sonic Temple because we really liked you know, what he did and his choice of colors, and it wasn't just like some cliched rock show. It was a rock show, but in, not cliched, and that's what we were trying to do ourselves. We were like, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So that helped, you know. Um, it was funny, though, to, that tour that, you know, the, the, I, I guess people don't realize there was a system in those days. You know, you record an album, you release your first single and video. That's usually kind of up-tempo. In our case, it was Firewoman. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I'll, I, I'm definitely going to counter this with a comment about Metallica any second, but most bands would do that, <laughs> go on tour, go on tour supporting a bigger band, mm-hmm. play North America, 
and then come back around once that tour was done. You put out your second single, which could be a ballad usually, mm-hmm. and that kind of gets you more broad appeal on more m- middle America radio. And then you go back around again on your own and play the same cities you've been in as a headliner on maybe your third single. So that's how there was a plan and a strategy. Yeah, and, and hoping some people that saw you on that in that support. Well, of course, yeah, exactly. Your exactly. Headline shows, yeah. And and you, yeah, radio keeps supporting you, and you're the new band, and that's how we did it. That it was almost, it was probably kind of, it was predictable and a slog, but it was effective. And it would keep your albums alive, and it would keep the music going, and it would not mean that, like, it's the antithesis of today, where you've got, like, one, it's like one swing of the bat, mm. you know? Yeah. It's like, yeah. like one strike and you're out, you know, you, you better <laughs> do something with your first hit of some description. Yeah. Um, so that was the thing, and so, so, so then, of course, the choice was, well, who are the cult going to play with in the summer who wants the cult? And the only two tours that we were offered by our manager at the time that said, these guys want you, um, and, it's a, and it's a fit, it was Ozzy Osbourne or Metallica. Oh, interesting. Which is funny, yeah, which is I, funny I, because neither... See, I, I, I come from a... Just to give you this little bit of info, I come from an interesting standpoint with Metallica and the cult touring together because that was um, you know very formative time in my yeah. life. I was in high school at that time. And prior to that, and I don't know how, I, there's probably few people that had this exact experience, but for me, the first music I fell in love with, uh, even, you know, despite the fact that I was growing up in Indiana in the Midwest of yeah. America, um, was a lot of the new wave and new romantic and post-punk stuff that was coming out of England. And a lot of that right, was, right. was thanks to having a cool older brother and, and things like that. But um, Yeah, 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 no, yeah. Generation X, Adam and the Ants, the cult, yeah, and... Uh, you know, and all and all that sort of stuff, and then somewhere around middle school and into high school, that love of post punk brought me to punk, which then brought me into thrash metal. I kind of skipped all the hair metal stuff and went directly into, you know, Metallica and Megadeth and Slayer and so on. So for me, right, well, when, but, yeah, when, yeah, I get it. When the cult was going out with Metallica, I was like, oh, that's awesome. But I also understood why people who were fans of either band were like, what? <laughs> That doesn't make any yeah, sense, actually. Yeah, it's interesting. <laughs> well, you get it, but unfortunately you're in the minority, and that's <laughs> right. one of those things where the nuance, you know, people would go and they would, you know, we we, we had a lot of action on MTV with Firewoman, and, yeah. you know, our album went platinum right away, which was a big deal for us. And pe- some people would come and see us, and, of course, you play those tours, and you're going on early, and some of them were what, you know, sheds, open-air venues, and we're going on at 7 o'clock. Yeah. You know, it's light and hot and not pleasant, and, you know, <laughs> a lot of the hardcore Metallica fans haven't even shown up yet, so we're playing to a load of plastic seats. Right. And our fans are all scattered on the lawn, and it was it was a challenging experience for us. And it would have been the same if we'd have played with anybody. It doesn't really matter that it was Metallica. We chose Metallica. We liked their, for exactly the same reasons you did, bearing in mind that we'd had that experience in New York, getting friendly with Anthrax and 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 Slayer and, and knowing that that underground, there was more in common between Metallica and punk bands. Yes. Then, you know, we're not talking hair metal. It all gets a little confused when you get it out there and, and the nuances disappear and, when Metallica blew up, and interestingly, Metallica were one of the bands who didn't do a video mm-hmm. until Justice for All, and then mm-hmm. they did one, which was their first concession, 
to MTV. And, 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 and even that, they were like, we're going to have a bunch of dark movie clips with the narrative talking over the music. <laughs> like it was still yeah, like, yeah, a, exactly. like a halfway I mean, compromise. <laughs> well, and, and that's, I think, what we found appealing for yeah. them was the extremity of, yeah. and their belief and their music was so extreme and it really wasn't hair metal. Now, you know, like all bands, you know, you can't do that forever. Well, you can, but you probably end up playing a bar to about six people right. as a 60-year-old. As a but, you know, for, for them at that point, it, it, it was a bold move because we, we thought Ozzy, obviously we loved Ozzy and we'd met him, but we thought that would have been too cliched metal audience. Yes. It was funny. We went with Metallica, you know, which is, which is a funny call when you look back at it because it really was the, that was the last original to me Metallica tour you know the skate punk thing and i mean yeah. you know if there was a girl in the audience trust me they were there to see the cold <laughs> you can ask lars about that <laughs> they're not going you can you yeah. can ask lars about that if we, any women were in the audience they were there to see the cult, which we all used to laugh about backstage but you know yeah. it, it was a very male you know hardcore proper metallica crowd of the old school skate punk variety but broadened out because the cult were hot on MTV and we were like this up-and-coming thing and we were thrown on the bill. And it, it kind of worked for everybody. It was a great tour, but challenging for us sometimes to go out there, you know, particularly when it's outdoors. Yeah, I can't stress how lame that is when you're the, the special guest and through no fault of anybody's, you're going on yeah. in hot, sunny weather where half the crowd haven't been allowed in the venue yet. And you're supposed to try and drum up the demons of rock, you know. It's, it's, <laughs> yeah, people it, don't necessarily understand when they hear, oh, my band has landed a tour with, you know, so-and-so and we're playing Sheds right. or we're playing amphitheaters. Yeah, they don't necessarily get that you might roll into Boise, Idaho and play a 13,000-cap venue, but you might be playing to 2,000 people. You know, well, a lot of them, around, yeah, it depends know. on the power of your pull and, yeah. and your you as a band. At that time... We were definitely hot and happening, yes. as were Metallica. Obviously, Metallica were way more established. I mean, they were headlining arenas. We got there a bit later. Do you know what I mean? That was like the yeah. next step for us. And this was one of the ways we wanted to take the call to that next level. And it, and it was a stepping stone on the way in that tried and tested method that, that was working for everybody. Um, and so it was interesting tour. We had a lot of fun with the guys. You know, it was... Um, you know, we were friendly anyway. I mean, I, rem I remember Lars driving me around San Francisco on my birthday because Lars originally was married to an English girl from Birmingham. Mm -hmm. And I remember coming into San Francisco. Which, and which doing not, not to interrupt that thought, but which some people may or may not know uh, was the basis for the character in the movie Goodwill Hunting. Did you know that? Really? <laughs> no. Yeah. No, no idea. No, no, no idea. I forget her name. It, it might have been Debbie. I don't know. But I had a birthday and I had a night off. So oh. what I did was me, Lars came and got me and we went driving around San Francisco in, I think it was a Honda Prelude, which was stick shift, which is very normal <laughs> in England. Oh. All cars are, you know, back in the day, in the 80s, all cars, you know, only very, very rich people had automatic cars in England. But, you know, that's not anymore. But So I'm like... And we're drinking a bit, and Lars is like, oh, I'll take you up some of the ridiculous streets in San Francisco in this stick shift pre Honda Prelude or whatever he had at the time. Mm -hmm. It's like, 
some little, and we went, and he took me up and down these ridiculous, you know, the most stupid high streets. And I remember doing that, and then ending up back at his place, um, just passing out. In he lived over in Berkeley, mm-hmm. I, I think. And they were based over there. I think they had like the garage days kind of. They had that that garage with the egg cartons on the wall. And yeah, it's all yeah. it's all through a vase of a, a, a veil of alcohol. But but I do remember it was my birthday. I do remember that it was so it was May the twelfth. It could have been eighty six, eighty five. I don't know. We were probably on the electric tour. Mm. I think. I don't know. I can't remember, but probably. And yeah, I remember we, and we just ended up there. I remember seeing where the, they used to rehearse in that garage um, with the eggshells on the wall, and then we yeah. all just passed out and. We, I remember going, he showed me around Berkeley and the, and the campus and Telegraph Road, and I'd never seen any of that stuff, you know, from the kind of American rock history. I always liked the West Coast sound. It was always a thing growing up in England, in Manchester, you know, we, it's, you always sort of attracted to something that couldn't be more different than yeah. what you're growing up in. So I'm growing up in like a council estate in Manchester with punk rock uh-huh. and the pistols and, and the banshees and the damned and the clash. And, you know, I'm looking over to the west coast of America going, oh, that looked fun. You know, Neil Young and the the, the 60s and the Fillmore and, and Berkeley and Peace and Love. And yeah. it just was exotic and interesting, you know, probably a bit smelly. But, you know, it was interesting. So Lars, I remember Lars showing me around there. Yeah, happy days. And that garage is um, a pretty famous uh piece of architecture and Metallica lore. In fact, when they um, when they celebrated the anniversary of Master of Puppets, they did some stuff there. Um, I think they had a party there. Uh, you know, the current occupants were kind enough to let them bring some people. Yeah, in. cool. See? That's, yeah. that's a very cool cool thing. I built, that's my recollection. And I, I think Lars was living in the house, and it was that they'd taken the, the garage of the house and put loads of insulation on the walls, which looked yeah. like egg cartons, yeah. and they glued them to the wall, and there were mattresses that covered any door spaces that when they played, they propped them up. And, you know, but, uh, you know, at that point in the evening, we were, we were definitely, uh, you know, three sheets to the wind. So it, <laughs> it, was, just, it, was, it, was, a, it was a pass-out situation, you know what I mean? Yeah. It's so interesting, too, to, to hear you talk about, you know, kind of that fascination across the pond with some of the stuff that was happening over here. Because, you know, for me, there was um, there was an Englishman who owned uh, a punk clothing shop in Indianapolis where I grew up. And he played in, right. played in a band called Toxic Reasons. And it was like the right. only, you know, it was obviously well before Hot Topic, it was the only place to get, you know, Doc Martens and... Uh, Sex Pistols T-shirt and you know whatever yeah, yeah, you might yeah, be looking absolutely. for, and, and it was and it was a similar thing for me where I would go into that place and I would get the magazines and the records and I was fascinated by England. <laughs> you know, yeah, like, yeah, of course. <laughs> dreaming that's about my, what's, yeah, that's what's the happening point. there. Like, you know, yeah. It's an exchange of you know the you know it's not that the grass is greener. No. But there's always just you, you always have an outreach if you've got an inquisitive mind. Yes. You know, you always just, you just, you just, you, you, and that's the thing. I, I've heard that a lot about people, you know, seeing what happened in England and gravitating to that. And, you know, it's just the difference and opposites attract and stuff. It's, it's an interesting part of the story. Yeah. Now it's pretty global. I mean, as long as you, you know, you're looking through the prism of your, uh, your device. <laughs> 
and in you, a 4G yeah. HD, whatever, you can go, travel anywhere from the, your living room. Well, and you mentioned being inquisitive, and I, and I, and I think that um, curiosity is, uh, you know, when you get into a philosophical conversation about what are the, what are the most attractive qualities in a person, like that's, that's in the top five for me. And I think, you know, yeah. you and Ian fit into that category from what I've seen in interviews and things over the years, and, and obviously Lars, uh, you know, is always voraciously consuming um, what's happening yes. out there. He's know? a seeker. Lars yeah, is a seeker, yeah. and Ian's a seeker, for sure. I'm a little less so. You know, my nature's a little less, but I definitely will go along with it. I'm, I don't, I'm not like, you know, the type of person who wants to put a blockage on anything, you know, on, on an exploration. I understand the value, even though sometimes seeking might lead you to get out of your lane and it might be a train wreck. Yeah. You know, I think it, the, the, I understand the value in exploration, you know, creatively. And and so, you know, Metallica made some very brave moves. You know, obviously, we, we, we mentioned Bob Rock. Mm -hmm. And, you know, we know, you know, we know uh, I mean, you know that, like, nothing else matters. That's my Gretsch on there, right? That big. Uh, no. That's that makes you know so that? Much, that makes so much sense. <laughs> it's my White Falcon. I, I was going to say, that's a, white, that's a White Falcon, right? Yeah. Yeah, it makes that big sweeping noise. I think yeah. it's an E minor. Nothing else matters, and you hear that big kind of sprang of a chord. That is classic Gretsch White Falcon. Yeah, and when you um, put that guitar on a, like a tiny person, it looks massive. But but if it's, it's not. On you yeah, or, it's or definitely a. It's, it's it's a. It's definitely you need to be a full size male <laughs> to deal with the White Falcon. I mean, if you see Malcolm Young playing one <laughs> in ACDC, it's yeah. it's literally like a kid's got hold of his dad's guitar. Yeah, it looks, um, like, it looks like he's playing an upright bass. Well, well, that was way. it. Well, Bob. <laughs> Well, we did the album with Bob, you know, and, and mm -hmm. you know, uh, people don't know or care or are interested, but the chronology of it is, you know, Bob had only really done that band Kingdom Come, who, you know, obviously were a very questionable Led Zeppelin pastiche. King, but, Kingdom Clone, as I like to call them back then. Yeah, Kingdom Clone. But, but you know, that being said, I looked beyond the, 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 the content yeah. and... Listen to, I, I looked beyond what they were doing and listened to the sounds, and I was like, mm -hmm. whoa, he's, that guy knows what he's doing. And, and I'd met Bob, and we ended up rolling the dice after Rick Rubin and using Bob to make the album. And obviously then Bob gets to see me using my Roland JC120, you know, mm -hmm. since I've been using that since like 83. Very signature clean sound, which obviously I think you might hear on quite a few Metallica records. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it, it's a pain to say. I know they used them live because they had them when we were on the road with them. And so many um, bands go to Bob now for the quote-unquote Black Album sound, you know? We yeah, really... it's funny, and it's an amalgam of stuff, you know, and yep. and, and that's yep. what's great about Bob. You know, he's, he's the perfect fusion of, he's Canadian, he's mm -hmm. an Anglophile, but he's mm -hmm. up in North America. So he gets, a bit, he gets it both. <laughs> and I think a, a lot of people fi find and can see that, you know. Yeah. Um, with him. And it was a great fit. You know, I remember um, I found out that Bob was going to do the the Black Album. Mm -hmm. And obviously we toured with I mean, I, you know, you can draw your own conclusions what happened with Metallica. And, you, and you can say there's a mutual benefit. Respect. And that's what's great about the the right kind of support bills is that, you know, you bringing the female audience and them hearing Sonic Temple and, the, you know, and knowing about Bob. And not to say that it's a hundred percent in any direction, but like it's there's a mutual exchange of yeah, and I ideas think that's healthy, and, and that's yeah. kind of what I saw. Yeah. <laughs> that's the funny difference. 
that's what I saw happening when all the bands, and that I include the British bands who came over and played in America, Humble mm-hmm. Pie and the, the Who and Bowie and all that. They all played Mop the Hoople, all of them. They all played on bills with other bands, and there was like an exchange of like, like, oh, wow, you guys do that. Interesting. And they look at you and go, oh, they do things that way. Oh, that's interesting. And then down the line, that kind of cultural exchange takes place. And it's actually healthy, cross-pollination, as long as it's not plagiarism, back to Kingdom Clone. Exactly. You know, as long as the band have a strong enough sense of themselves, Mm -hmm. it's almost like you feed off each other's energy and go, oh, we learned a lot off Metallica. And they probably learned some stuff off us, and right. and that's how the, the it's it's a, it's a sort of an organic exchange that takes place from musicians, um, and 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 the, moving forwards, you know, and I think it helped. But I remember we couldn't, we were going to do, we were doing the follow up to Sonic Temple, and it was not a great album for us in the end. It was just we'd kind of had our run of great records and. Me and Ian were not getting along too great, and we were in a bad place. We shouldn't have really done the record at that point, but Bob was going to come in and produce it, and he worked on one track on the Ceremony album, Mm -hmm. and his plan was, I'm going to do pre-production with you in the morning, and then I'm going to go in the studio with Metallica, and we're going to record this album, which became the Black Album. So after about four days of this, he came and he went, "Um, I can't do your record. Oof. It's been four days and we still haven't got a kick drum sound on the Metallica <laughs> yeah. album. And, that, that album uh, was and famously I know, I, I'm, not, yeah. I'm not an expert, but from my perspective, I, I heard some stories about what it took to create the Black Album and the mm-hmm. vision and what went on. And I know Metallica fans will know this, you know, but I know that they, they then embarked on a sort of 13-month journey Yes. To create that album, you know what I mean? I mean, even we would take three months to make a record in those days, but, yeah. you know, they were into a whole... And, of course, the end results are, you know, transformational for them. I just I just interviewed, actually, uh, the, the guy who directed the documentary, uh, which is very uh, conspicuously titled A Year and a Half in the Life of Metallica. <laughs> and it's yeah, about yeah. making that album. And, incidentally, by the way, uh, so connecting so many dots in your story here, um, the guy who directed that documentary was college dorm mates with Rick Rubin <laughs> before oh, before Rick, uh, you know, had had made any records or anything. Yeah, NYU, right? You must yeah, have been at, at NYU. NYU. Yeah, 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 yeah. And it's also interesting probably... that, you, that you guys went with Rick and then Bob, and Metallica, you know, years later would go from Bob to Rick. <laughs> yeah, I mean, they're both, you know, again, tremendous producers, and they're both very yeah. different. And I, you know, you know, Rick was amazing for the call and, and helped us make a painful transition, you know, for, from one type of band to something that was more lasting and, you know, probably why we're having a conversation today, 30-plus mm. years later, is that we had the bravery and Rick had the, you know, kind of the, the gumption to see that the cult needed to not make the Love Album twice. You know, right. just make it right. once, it's great, but now you need to... T- Start looking at other challenges. So uh, the White Falcon, I actually pulled you off course, as I want to do, and I apologize. Oh yeah, yeah. No, um, well, no, I know. Well, I sold Bob a couple of guitars while I was up there, regretfully actually, because that is my habit. Sometimes I tend to just sell guitars, and um, I had a few White Falcons, and Bob didn't have one, 
and um, I, you know, I'd used, I'd used it. I had a few of them, and I sold one to Bob, and that ended up on that Metallica uh, song. Uh, definitely, nothing else matters for sure. Yeah, and th- and that was a big risk for them. That song in general, and it was really a, a bit of a Headfield solo ballad, as I understand it. That I think Bob coaxed them into. Including yeah, I mean that's person. Bob. That's the thing. Bob. Bob's a great guy. You know, he's. You know, Rick. Rick has one way of producing. I think if you Rick, if you work with Rick Rubin, you know, and, and you have your songs fully formed, like we did, we, he kind of reduced the cult down to make electric and took things away and got it mm-hmm. down to the essence. He's not the guy you want to go to, which some bands have to where they've only got half-finished songs because they've been too busy on the studio, you know, on the tour to get in the studio, yeah. or the songs are half-realized, but they need to write them in the studio. Bob Rock's your guy, because he can help put songs together from very small ideas, you know. You know, it's just, there's not better, it just is what it is, and right. you can't work with Rick Rubin if you don't have your material, because Rick's not really a musical person. I don't think he can play an instrument. He just knows what's cool. Right. He's more He's more of a vibe person, a sounds person. He's a vibe guy, and he knows what he wants to hear. That's not to diminish him, but no, it's just you. a different me- methodology. And Bob's more of a hands-on musician guy who manages to not get down the rabbit hole of the music. He can separate himself and still be a producer, is what I'm saying. Yeah. You know, he, you know and, and make producer calls rather than musician calls. I'm someone who, uh, who who I love the ethereal, experimental, atmospheric sort of vibes of love. And then when I first heard that uh, that riff and that drum part in the beginning of Love Removal Machine, it was like, oh, this is like a different. I mean, you know, it's a different version of the cult that is equally great. And you, and definitely, like you said, you can you can just hear that it's the same skeleton just with a lot of the tissue sort of torn away. Yeah, yeah, Rick, Rick, Rick was just into reduction. I mean, that's the best quote. It's Rick's quote. I didn't really produce the cult in so much as I reduced them. And by taking away, he, <laughs> yeah. he simplified it and opened us up to a broader audience. Yeah. And then the plan with Bob Rock, he, was, he like yourself, got, got both albums, mm. liked both albums, possessed both albums, and then went... If I'm producing, I just want to take try and get the best of both of those albums yeah. together in one album, and that was the, the 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 mission of Sonic Temple to do it. And and you know we just tried to just progress. It's just progressive stuff. Keep putting feet forward, and that's what we did. And the same thing happened with Metallica, though. You know, after mm-hmm. doing, you know, the, you know, they they obviously had the tragedy, you know, losing the bass player, and then they did Injustice for All, and you know. As somebody once said, they forgot to put any bass on it. Uh-huh. <laughs> you know, there really isn't any bass. I mean, Matt Lars might have said that. You know, the bass is inaudible on the record. Yep. But then they came around, they came through that kind of grieving process, and, and one had opened them up to a new audience, and then they got managed to be smart enough to get Bob to that once they'd seen that window that this could become even, like, tremendous, you know, go from an arena act to a stadium act you know, like kind of on the Guns N' Roses trajectory, mm-hmm. that's what happened. And that was the album they had to make. And I'm sure there was lots of grumblings from the original fans and, you know, you know, this is no ride the lightning and, you know. Right. But, you know, you know what I'm saying. Well, it's and, I'm, just, and I'm, I'm, sure, I'm sure Ian had pockets of people that were like the cults, you know, Southern Death Cult. 
Oh, always, always. Yeah, you know, always, we, yeah. you know, we sold we sold more records with our first like EP, right? As Death Cult than Southern Death Cult ever sold. But you know, you, you, you it's always difficult to compete with a legend every you know. step of the way. You know, you, you know, to be real and be a real, tangible, ongoing, flawed enterprise rather than a myth. You know, and <laughs> God, the legend so well grows said. with. You know what I mean? And, yeah, but but. That, that that's you know you just do your best you have to accept that's how life is yeah and and keep keep driving forwards with the with the band and and what you do you know and you don't are, get too caught up in that as an interviewer i gotta say you are full of poll quotes and that was a big one just now <laughs> <laughs> i love it sorry one day i've got to write a book <laughs> <laughs> yes you should you absolutely should I know. you've got i've got plenty of stories um and uh yeah it you know a lot of those you know, you think if, when you do the book, would it be the kind where you sit and talk with a writer for hours and hours in different chunks, and then? Yeah, I don't know. Yeah, yet. I've, 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 my gut is to not do it while the cult's still active. Mm. You know. Yeah. But but I don't I don't know. I mean, you know, all my mates have done them. You know, nearly every guy I know who's you know in bands has done them. You know, maybe yeah. one day. There's never really been a cult book, you know, and obviously no. it wouldn't be, it'd be my book, not a cult book, but uh, yeah, I, I don't know, maybe if the cult goes on a break, I'll, um, I'll, I'll figure something out. I know I don't want to sit there and type it out myself. Right. <laughs> That's where the, uh, <laughs> not that I'm lazy. I, no, 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 I, I know exactly what you mean. And it also helps, not... I think, in the process to have someone direct you a little bit and, uh, like a producer, you know, to reduce. <laughs> I agree. Shape, I agree. You know? I agree. I wouldn't want to do. My, a couple of my friends have done it themselves. Johnny Marr from the Smiths yeah, and yeah. Uh, Duff McKagan wrote his own. I think Slim Jim from the Stray Cats wrote his. Oh God! And there's a new. Stray and then Cats other people have had them yeah. written for you know, not written for them, you know, but like, you know, we'll see, we'll see. But down the line, maybe, you know. Yeah. I'd have to take a year off and go and stay. In. I wanted if I do it, I'm doing it like in a cottage in Ireland or something. You know, I'm just yeah. going to go off to some fishing village in Ireland and just take six months and be like, I'm doing my memoirs, leave me alone. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm fishing and, and, and doing and going, doing, I'm doing my memoirs. <laughs> that's the dream right there. Oh, okay. One other thing. I'm just trying to think Metallica related yeah. stuff. I mean, obviously we're pals with him, particularly Lars, but we're solid, you know, the connection with Bob. And, but then there's another interesting little story. So, what seems like not long ago, but it was actually only about four years after Sonic Temple, mm -hmm. grunge had happened. The cult had released an album, Ceremony. It hadn't yeah. done very well. Um, and then grunge was going on, and then we, would, we went back to Canada and did an album, the eponymous just The Cult, which, which was kind of our kind of post-grunge reassess who we are, you know, perhaps we got a little bit hair metal caught up there. Mm -hmm. um, that was our reassess album. And at that time, we also realized that as a band, we were broke. We were actually in debt. I mean, I had, you know, me and Ian as human beings weren't starving. But as an entity, the business that is the call was actually in debt. Because right. we've been touring and staying in nice hotels this will sound familiar to any of you who's ever been in a band. And, um, you know, living the life, but we weren't really paying attention to the bottom line, you know. Mm -hmm. We were touring and losing money, touring marginally and having a great time. But 
as a business, it was a loss maker. So we woke up one day and I looked at Ian and, and this is a true story. We did a couple of gigs. I remember doing a gig in, in Orange County in LA that at some kind of amphitheater in like 90, I'm saying 94 probably, mm -hmm. 93, maybe 93. And I remember I got to the gig and my long standing guitar tech, who's now a very famous uh, production manager for, for huge bands. He might, I don't know, a guy called Chris Kinsey. Uh, Kinsey, Kinsey. Mm -hmm. He was my tech for a long time. And he, he came, and I went, I remember going to the gig, and we did this gig specifically to generate funds to run the band. Mm -hmm. And he and he said, uh, this guy came, uh, some guy came by and delivered an envelope for you. And I opened this envelope, and it's, uh, it's a lawsuit for $61 million. For the ceremony and another lawsuit cover, right? For 67, 61, and another one for $67 million. And that was my first example of the American legal system at its finest right. and, and terms of an ambulance chasing and mm -hmm. abusing the system and that, whatever. So that was, so right around that time, we also got, so that happened. And then I remember another funny phone call. Oh, I've got some great news. I'm like, what? They went, the $67 million lawsuit went away. I said, okay, so now they only want $61 million. <laughs> <laughs> Who do they think they're dealing with? Like, if the Rolling Stones had Led Zeppelin and formed a band? I mean, it was ridiculous. <laughs> yeah. And, I, and right at the time when grunge had happened, you know, we were, we were right in our weakest moment, and this ridiculous lawsuit came in about a ridiculous picture on a sleeve mm -hmm. that was like something that I didn't even want... Um, we we would have put the thing out in a brown paper bag. We didn't right. care about the sleeve. Right. Yeah. You know, we got embroiled in this long lawsuit, and um, it was ridiculous. Yeah, that's not an so, album that was sold by the sleeve. People didn't go, oh, that album cover. No, I have no idea what just, this is. Oh, yeah. oh, it, it, it gets <laughs> yeah. even better. Just for the record, I'd like to say the picture we were originally going to use, which was designed by some guy Ian knew was owned by the Smithsonian. And we said, eh, we might get in trouble for using <laughs> that. Let's go and find a similar picture that we can buy off a photographer, yeah. which we did, oh, and wow. we still got screwed. Because that's the law. The illegal system in America kicked in. And uh, as I think, what, what's the best quote I can say on it? You don't get justice, you get the law. And in America's case, you get the laws plural, because mm -hmm. you're a country of, we are, because I'm American citizen too, we, we are a country where the laws aren't always blue sky, which means they don't, the law in South Dakota isn't necessarily the law in California right. or New York. Which is why and so many contracts matters. will say, oh, this, this contract will be dealt with under the laws of Delaware. Yeah, all that. Like, so, I had, so that was shitty. We had a crash course in all that. So with the yeah. background of that horror show going on, right. post-grunge, we did go out and play Europe with Metallica. And I remember mm -hmm. it was 93, and it was it was late June and July, and we did some some oh, quite a lot of gigs with Metallica in Europe. I remember um, we went to Port Portugal, Played a soccer stadium, was massive, maybe thirty thousand people. Um, that was a fun tour. We did a couple of shows with Guns N' Roses as well in England at the same time, 
But that was fun. We did a lot of um, open-air stuff. And that was the only time we really got any open hostility from a Metallica crowd. Oh, really? Was the two gigs we did in Germany. One was in Nuremberg, where Hitler used to have his rallies, and it'd become an American army base, and uh-huh. then it'd become a park. So the famous scene of the Nuremberg rallies, they were doing rock shows at. Fest- wow. little mini festival things and we played but we played with Metallica and I remember that we didn't those two gigs we didn't go down too great but everywhere else was fantastic you know all the other gigs we did um, it was it was very harmonious but yeah I do remember a few missiles flying by while we were playing in Germany and those were the first gigs on the tour and I was, oh what did I sign up for here you know I can only imagine how heavy the the fog of Bad vibes can be in yeah, Nuremberg. Yeah, kind of trippy. Yeah. yeah, like what? What did we sign up for here? It was a mess. But you know, it was good. But I remember this is a funny story. So we're on that tour. Megadeth joined occasionally. Mm-hmm. It was actually Metallica, The Cult, and Suicidal Tendencies. And Suicidal Tendencies, as you well know, eventually provided Metallica, you know, with a bass player, didn't yeah. they? Yeah, and you and you almost provided them with a bass player. Right. Almost. We, we, yeah, our guy, yeah, Chris Wise came second, right? Um, yeah, he came second. Oh, that's, oops, silver medal, not quite good enough. But he, um, but what was funny about that tour was we were out on it, and Suicidal at that point had had a hit with a kind of a ballad song. Oh, right. And uh, they wouldn't how play I it live. Tomorrow. Yeah. Wow, they wouldn't play it. No. Well, no, we're not playing that. It's too, it's too lightweight. We'll get killed. I'm like, well, if suicidal tendencies are scared of playing like a more, uh, 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 you know, it was a good tour. I drank very heavily throughout it, so much so that I quit drinking after that tour. That was the last tour oh, that I wow. ever drank on. Wow. That was it. That was, I remember, yeah, I think it was, yeah, yeah, that was it. But we, we had a great time, but, but, but it was, um, yeah, it was pretty funny. So yeah, you were you were ahead of James with uh, giving up the booze then too. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I, I packed it in. In so that was the last tour, and that was somewhere in that was early July ninety, early in July ninety three, late June July ninety three. We did a bunch of shows, had a great time. I mean, it was a lot of fun. You know, it was it was great, great. There were huge venues and. It was a good time, but at the end of it, I was just, I, I raised the white flag on the booze, you know. I was, yeah. You, when you start drinking, like, just neat vodka, not even on ice, <laughs> you know that you're not, you know, it's, you're in a whole different realm of consumption. But La, Lars and, and Ro, Robbie uh, used to do it, too, because he was in suicidal at that point. Uh-huh. I remember we were all, I remember in a subway underpass outside a club somewhere in Spain, the three of us drinking and, a bottle of vodka. There's a bunch of stories, you know. I'm sure you've heard all of them. And you guys also on that tour, uh, if I'm not mistaken, you played in Tel Aviv, right? In Israel? No, we didn't. We, we've never played Tel Aviv. We did. No, it was fantastic because remember the Bosnian War was going on. We played in Greece and we all went on a cargo plane that Metallica chartered. Mm-hmm. That was a fun story. So they, they, they hired some kind of semi military cargo plane that took everybody. Both all the bands, all the gear, all the crew. As far as I remember, I don't know whether Metallica were on the flight personally, because obviously they were the headliners, but mm-hmm. we were on it with all the crew. And that had to fly over, you know, technically a war zone. I remember that was it, Heady. Wow. We did Istanbul, which was unbelievable. Mm-hmm. 
and we did Athens, and uh, totally memorable, and I'm I'm totally happy I went and did them. They were great. Yeah, so Athens was probably your last show, because I think that was right before Israel, maybe? Or maybe the Israel show. Yeah, we didn't go to Israel, which is a shame. You know, somewhere it's actually on my bucket list to to go to Israel just to check it out. So we definitely didn't do Israel, because I've never been. Well, I've got you on here. You know, we were talking about the um, celebration of Sonic Temple, and yeah, it it is perfect timing to have you on a Metallica-oriented podcast. What can you tell me sort of about everything you have going around that? Well, we just, you know, I mean, it's, you know, 30 years later, it's a very different approach, you know, as a band. I mean, you know, I'm 58 years old. Um, Ian's 57. You know, I'm not as keen, you know, it's okay to go and do these tours if you play one gig every three days, stay in the four seasons and fly in a private jet. (laughs) Mm -hmm. That's good. Yes. If you're anywhere further down the food chain on that, and you actually want to make money, you're not traveling like that. So it becomes something of a bit of a dull, penny-pinching accountancy vibe. You know, like, I mean, I I think any person who's obviously not in anybody who's a fan is aware that the music business has changed, and, you know, everything's very different now, and people go on tour to make money to pay their bills because money is not coming in from other areas in essence, record sales, because there aren't any. So the whole economic thing has shifted for every band, every band in the world, you know. I mean, whereas bands would sell hundreds of, you know, you know 10, 20, 30 million albums, now if they sell 150,000 albums, that's miraculous, generally speaking. You know, a million albums now is like Adele level, you know. For Adele to do 22 million albums on Beggar's Banquet, I might add, um, is is a phenomenon. You know, that kind of thing still happens in popular culture, but I don't think there are many rock, guitar-orientated rock bands of any description who sell music like that anymore. It just doesn't happen. A big rock band now, you know, that that were coming in at the end of the big platinum days, you know, Disturbed or an Avenged Sevenfold, or, you know, those bands are selling 200,000... 300,000 maybe on a big record now. That's yeah, that's a big album now. That's yeah. physical sales, that is that yeah. big now. Yeah. So do the, ma- do the math, do the math. You know, <laughs> yeah. you don't have to be a genius to do the math from, you know, 20 million albums sold at, you know, 15, 16, $17 each, whatever the band's small sliver of that action is. Mm-hmm. You know, all that money has vanished. Yeah. So... So, or you know, it's redirected. People spend their entertainment dollars on other things now than, mm-hmm. than that. They might download a single or two, you know, so great, you know, and then you get paid whatever the hell you get paid off that. But Yeah. Uh, and, and yeah that, so, so, you know, hey, no complaints. Better than digging holes, as somebody once <laughs> said to me. <laughs> um, I'll tell you who that was. There's another one. His name's Joe Seabrook, and he used to be Keith Richards' personal security guy, and we used him on a tour Actually, on the Sonic Temple tour, we had two security guys, Joe Seabrook and another guy called John Miller, both legends, British guys, um, legends. You know, John Miller could kill you with a pencil, and, <laughs> um, but, he, but he was quite suave and debonair, still is, lovely fella. Joe Seabrook looked like the kind of guy who would fight Brad Pitt 
in that movie where Brad Pitt was the Irish guy with the caravan that's just about the bare knuckle fighter that's what Joe Seabrook looked like <laughs> he's just one of those guys that just looked at you and you were like yes sir yeah. lovely fella and, and, and he said that to me once when I was whining about some rock star related he's like he's better than digging holes Billy better than digging holes better than digging holes in the ground so. which is what my old man used to do for a living sort of so you know <laughs> it's, uh, I'm always reminded to be mindful and be grateful about what I've got you know and not be caught up in what you've not got you know what I mean indeed indeed you know when I when I tell people that I'm a journalist and uh but my dad worked for the local newspaper they go oh so it's you're carrying on the family tradition and i'm like no no my dad fixed machines at the newspaper the, yeah yeah he fixed that yeah yeah it's a different yeah. world man different world. it's a different world but but good times yeah we're out so you know in you know in answer to your question i kind of like a little bit got off track but but yeah we're just going out we're playing shows they're very successful at the level the cult are at the fans are loving it I'm personally loving playing this material because the album meant a lot to me, Sonic Temple. Yeah. Um, we don't play all of it. There's a couple of tracks that we just were like, uh, nah, they're not, they're just, we're not completists. It's not, we're not pedantic. It's all the best songs off Sonic Temple and there's just a couple that we just didn't want to play. And, and we look, we talked to the band guys and they, I, and we said, you know, do you think we're missing anything by not playing these two? And they're all like, Nah, <laughs> you know. Yeah. So you know, we, it's um, it's a fun thing. It's just to celebrate more for the fans, yeah. you know, and let them, you know. But it, but as it, from a personal perspective, it's great for me to walk on stage and play the same era material, one song after another, because I can get myself in the headspace of who I was right. then, and you know, rather than when we do tours and we're playing a, a song from different eras that could be 35 years apart, mm -hmm. I'm a very different human being. So with this, there's a flow to it that I find somewhat hypnotic, and there's a rhythm to the show and an arc. And, you know, we play some hits at the end and this and that, but, we, you know, we, it's, it's just working very nicely, and uh, hopefully we can continue, you know, because Sonic Temple in itself, was was lasted over a year the touring so mm -hmm. we intend to keep this going as long as people care we, we we'd like to play right through until you know summer of next year maybe which would uh, would be somewhat similar lifespan as the original sonic temple tour um but we're just not going to play as often you know we don't we you know we we play when it makes sense for us and the gigs are good and you know, we keep it enjoyable now rather than just grinding out gig after gig after gig. Um, you know, it's just not, not physically or financially viable anymore to do that for us. You know, and, and I'm sure, you know, I mean, Metallica have got their own version of what they do these days. Because the other thing is you also become adults, you have families, mm -hmm. you get lives. And, you know... Um, it's a different part of the journey, you know, when it was all four of you sleeping on the floor of a motel room um, and driving in the van all day to being, you know, whatever you become, wealthy individuals or whatever. It's a, it's a different battle, and I know that's been documented quite well with Metallica on, on a couple of things that illustrates some stuff behind the curtain yes. of, you know, when you become an adult and you become financially independent and you don't need the band 
then you have to go back to like that thing I told you about, like why you yeah. got to get yeah. th- that, and that's what bands do. And sometimes they go back around, and you'll you'll find it in a lot of bands. They go back, and pe- people will say, "Go back to like why you did that first record." Mm-hmm. You know, when you when you're searching for inspiration, go and refine yourself. You know, now now you've got. Because that, that was another thing. We had a manager who died now. His name was Howard Kaufman, and he used to work with oh, Urban sure. Azoff. And he, yeah. was, he was the he, he very famous HK management, and he mm-hmm. was the accountant when the Eagles blew up, and they were selling like a million albums a week. And mm-hmm. he he gave us some very savvy... He was a great guy, and um, he gave me some, some meaning and some very sage advice. You know, when when he was managing us, which was the Sonic Temple era, he, we... We we came into some money. We'd never really had any money up to that. We were we were okay, but suddenly we had money, and they were looking at a bank account, and there was all these zeros in it. And I was like, "Wow!" And Howard said, "Yeah, now your problems are really going to start." <laughs> He's like, yeah. "Trust me," he said. Now what you're going to do? Because you know you 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 have this illusion that the cash and prizes will bring satisfaction and happiness, and to mm-hmm. an extent, of course, you know. That that's true. I've been rich. I've been poor. Rich is better. You know that quote. <laughs> but but, and I'm sure you know it's it's evident in the you know the Metallica story. You know and but but they 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 do what they do because they love it. We do what we do because we love it. And um, who knows? We might do some gigs again together. You never oh, know. Yeah. I wouldn't rule it out. Hell yeah. Um, you know. I'm sure they wouldn't either. It could be. Life's funny like that. It could be, you know, simpatico. You know, I, you know, if Metallica go out and, you know, and we're doing Sonic Temple and they're going out playing again soon, why not? It would seem to be a fit. Hell yeah. Um, yeah you I, know. I, I want to ask you one more Sonic Temple question, if you'll indulge me. Sure. That photo of you on the cover, and we were talking about album covers like the ceremony and stuff, on the opposite yeah, yeah. end of the spectrum, a good memory, that is probably the most iconic, singularly <laughs> most identifiable image with the cult. And, of course, you know, you guys are using a, a, a variation of that um, on yeah, this tour. Yeah, yeah. Um, what was the origin of that in terms of how it ended up? Because, no, you know, Ian's, yeah. on, Ian's on the cover, too, but you kind of, because of the way it looks, and you don't really think of him being on the cover. Yeah, yeah. It, well, we want yeah, no, that's a very good question, and... It is, we wanted an iconic image that said rock, like, mm. you know, beware, it went to here. You know what you're going to get when you see an album with that image on the cover? Yeah. You know, it's the Les Paul, it's the arm in the air. And we, we, we just looked at what we saw were like classic rock images. Most of them, not all, but most of them would have the guitar player, like Pete Townsend holding the guitar in the air like mm-hmm. a weapon. Yeah. You know, with the Who. Um, there were some images that we I remember looking at like um, Freddie Mercury on the front cover of Queen's first album where there's like a thing of a spotlight and yeah. Freddie Mercury there's a mic stand we, 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 I remember these were images and things that we looked at and there'd been a photo of me taken on stage where I had my arm in the air like that but no, we didn't own it and it was somewhat similar and, and, and we'd said how about using that yeah. So, working with the art guy, shamefully though, I will admit to this now because I'm old and I don't care, <laughs> we had to reshoot it in a in a rehearsal room in Los Angeles. So that is me in full rock regalia, <laughs> standing on standing on a stage with nothing behind me, with a Les Paul that I'd borrowed 
probably <laughs> I'd actually borrowed it off Steve Jones. Oh wow! Well, that's if awesome. You look, if you look, if you look at the guitar, it's a black Les Paul, yeah. and it's not actually mine. I was using the ones with the wood front. Uh-huh. For some reason, my guitars were somewhere else. I borrowed it, and for the just for this shoot, the photographer was. There's another thing about the cult. We used Ian got us to use this this fashion photographer called Andrew McPherson. He did the photos on the Love album. He also did the photos on on Sonic Temple. He he also became involved with U2, and when they did a few big tours, he became their tour photographer. But initially, he was a fashion guy. And he came, I remember him sprawling on the floor of the the, the rehearsal room to get the right angle, to make it look like it was me standing on a stage. Yeah. (coughs) But uh, it was kind of, and I can assure you, it was pretty embarrassing things to do. (laughs) Oh, and the last thing about it, I'll say, that I remember is, before the days of computers, that my arm didn't exactly, if you look at the sleeve of Sonic Temple, my arm fit perfectly between the and cult, uh-huh. the E and the D. Well, it, it didn't in the photo, but as I'm wearing like a kind of a cut-off Levi jacket in total tribute to Bon Scott, I might add, oh, nice. that, um, that, 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 that is like a cut-off black Levi jacket, yeah. he, uh, they just took my arm like cut it off and moved it a couple of degrees <laughs> like the arms on a watch on a clock you know what i mean and, that, Pretty, and, it, yeah. and then it just fitted um and no it, photoshop yeah, <laughs> yeah there's no photoshop yeah, exactly but it, you know, nice. yeah. <laughs> you know so we, these days that would have been done on your phone but yeah it was done done old school and uh yeah, Ian's the background. It's just one of those things. We did have a few last minute. There were shots of me and Ian together, and none of them had the impact. And there was yeah. a little bit of a last minute panic on it because somebody was like, "Are you sure you want to go that route?" And we second guessed ourselves and put on a picture of me and Ian, and um, it just didn't look. No, the there's part. something about the symmetry of it and the sort of triangular shape and the way. Well, you know, yeah, yeah, it's just, well, well, it's there, Duffy, isn't it? And it's almost like you're pointing at the cult. (laughs) Well, yeah, yeah. I mean, it just, on a lot of levels, it works. But it's like, I mean, which came first, that or Air Jordan? I can't remember. (laughs) That's right. We call it the Air Duffy. (laughs) I mean, that's the, you know, it's iconic. (laughs) Like the Air, look at the, look at the success of Michael Jordan. Yeah. And Air Jordan. Oh, I love, I I love those. I'm a, I'm a huge fan of those uh, inner circle nicknames for things like that. Like, you know, the. The people in the Danzig camp call that skull the Bullwinkle. Yeah, yeah, exactly. We've, we've all got the name. Well, that, we call it Air Duffy, yeah. Air Duffy, so great. That's the, the Sonic Temple Oak is our Air So on that note... Yes, on that note. <laughs> I think we're good. Yeah, this has been a, a massive pleasure. I'm so glad you were able to do it. And Yeah, please, yeah. Hopefully it works out. Nice chatting with you. Yeah. And um, who knows, I'm, I'm, I, my gut says we're going to be on a bill with Metallica at some point in the next year. I just know it. You should be. It's just, it's just poetic. It's got, I don't know what that's going to be, whether it's a tour, whatever. I just I just think it's going to happen. I just my gut tells me that it might happen. Just just it's it's the you know it's the right record for us. Yeah. And uh, I think the time's right. You know, for 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 there's, there's a sort of poetic symmetry to that if it happens. So that'd be cool. Hell yeah. And yeah, and as you said, they're out. They're out right now. So. Um, they're in that mode. We'll see, yeah. Hopefully we yeah. can manifest that. It'll be fun. Excellent. Well, Billy, thanks so much. Have a great show tonight. And um, Yeah, yeah. It's been yeah, a pleasure. San Francisco, always a pleasure to be in this town. Awesome, awesome, awesome.
All right. Take care. Good chatting with you. And uh, I'll see you down the way. All right. Cheers. Bye-bye. That does it for this episode of Speak and Destroy. As always, you can follow me on Twitter at Ryan Downey, on Instagram at SuperheroHQ, and follow the show at SpeakandDestroy.com, on Instagram, Facebook, YouTube, and Twitter. Speak and Destroy is part of the Pop Curse Podcast Network. If you'd be so kind, please leave a five-star rating and write a nice little review for the show, and make sure to subscribe. As always, you guys have been great, and I've been Ryan J. Downey.